Hello, welcome everybody once again. It's just me here and Gaz in the back room. Hopefully we'll get a few of your questions through, but I'm I'm really sorry if we don't cover many of them. But tonight I'm talking to Rod Driver. Uh, most of you probably already know him, but uh, he's he's done a lot of elephants in the room, his blog's called, and he gives an easy to understand, comprehensive study of certain subjects and tonight we're talking about the biggest criminal organization on the planet which is america um aided and abetted by uh jolly old uk of course so if we could bring rod in please hi everybody oh, hi rod <laughs> um right i'd like to start off with uh the the first and second world war i suppose because that's everybody knows about that don't they everybody knows all about that well, what's Do very they? interesting is uh, that uh, the the mainstream presentation of events uh, is often very different from what actually goes on in practice. And so, uh, World War One and World War Two are some some of the greatest examples of historical propaganda uh, that Britain and America have ever um, created. So, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through. Uh, events from about 1945 until the year 2000. And this is going to be the first of a two-parter. So in a future session, we'll talk about more recent wars since approximately the year 2001, when we're talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. So this first week gives us a kind of overview of uh, how um, US foreign policy particularly, but also British foreign policy sort of dominates uh, events all over the world. And it's extraordinarily criminal. So there's a very good researcher in America uh, called William Blum. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he wrote what is probably the definitive kind of introductory guide to understanding US foreign policy. And it's called Rogue State. And he, there's a quote of his, which I think is, is worth reading out in full. Since the end of the Second World War, the United States has attempted to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments and to crush more than 30 populist nationalist movements struggling against intolerable regimes. In the process, the US has caused the end of life for several million, sorry, several million people and condemned many, many millions more to a life of agony and despair. If you flip over the rock of American foreign policy of the past century, this is what crawls out. Invasions, bombings, overthrowing governments, assassinating political leaders, death squads, torture, biological warfare, drug trafficking, mercenaries, suppressing movements for social change, perverting elections, manipulating labor unions, manufacturing news, depleted uranium, dot, dot, dot. And it's basically an endless list of criminal activities in other countries. And so in his writing, he presents a sort of detailed analysis of uh, all of the different countries where America has either had a war where it's invaded and killed lots of people, or the CIA, its intelligence agency, has gone in and tried to assassinate a foreign leader because America didn't like that leader, or it's tried to destabilize um a country by supporting protest movements, uh, which became brutal and violent and so on. So uh, if we take a, a look at a couple of 
America's worst crimes of the 20th century. So we'll come on to World War II, World War I and World War II uh, towards the end, because they're a little bit more complex. So if you begin with North Korea, so from 1945, immediately after the end of the Second World War, until 1953, America dropped 600,000 tons of bombs on North Korea, destroying everything and killing millions of people. And then if you go forward a few years, most people will be aware that America had a war with Vietnam. And it wasn't just Vietnam that America was attacking. It was Vietnam and its two neighboring countries, Cambodia and Laos. And they attacked them for the best part of 20 years. And in that time period, they dropped 7 million tons of bombs. Now, these numbers of bombs are a bit hard to get your head around. You know, what's a million tons of bombs? Nobody really knows. Well, that's actually three times as many bombs as were dropped by all sides in World War II. So this was an astonishing quantity of bombs, and it completely destroyed all of Vietnam and large parts of Cambodia and Laos. And millions of people, again, were murdered. And some people will be aware that there's a, a U.S. Uh, spokesman from that era called Henry Kissinger. And he ordered a massive bombing campaign on Cambodia. And he used the expression, everything that flies on anything that moves. So this meant use every single uh, airplane and helicopter that you can get your hands on to slaughter everyone. And that includes attacking innocent women and children. So this is actually an order to commit genocide. So both North Korea and Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos uh, are essentially uh, genocide. So the worst crime that any group of people or governments can commit. So various uh, researchers have uh, looked at these um, uh, various wars and concluded that the total deaths caused by uh, the US military uh, in these wars is at least 13 million people. And that's a very conservative estimate. Plenty of researchers think that it's actually many more. Now, this is often called the U.S. Holocaust. And like many things that we discuss in relation to the mainstream media, you will almost never hear the BBC or The Guardian or, if you're in America, the New York Times talk about the U.S. Holocaust and America's mass slaughter of innocent people in war zone after war zone. So with every war that America fights, we see certain patterns. So each war is always justified in some way. Now, when I say each war is justified, there are one or two wars that America has fought where the fighting was over before anybody in the media knew about it. So the attack on Panama uh, was, uh, was a good example of that. So that was sort of like a, a war that lasted a few days. So if they can get away with it, they'll fight a secret war and not tell anybody about it until it's over. But in general, the wars go on rather longer than that. So they try and justify their wars. So a lot of the time they'll say something like, oh, there's an insane dictator we have to deal with. Oh, we're afraid of weapons of mass destruction. Or a lot of the time they'll say, ah, humanitarian intervention. That means we have to go and protect people from their insane leaders. And the mainstream media will repeat these justifications without any real questioning. And years later, declassified documents, so 
we have a system in Britain where um, many documents are classified for 20 to 30 years. It used to be 30 years. That's been shortened to about 20. And, but eventually they're released to the public uh, and they're made available. We can look at them and historians go through them and they realize that the government has lied to us about every single war they've participated in. And whistleblowers who were inside the government come forward and say, actually, uh, this uh, the version of events that the government gave you uh, was a lie. And so most famously, uh, in relation to the Vietnam War, there was a whistleblower called Daniel Ellsberg, who was a former insider in the State Department. And he came forward and said, actually, the government keep telling you that the war's about this or the war's about that. In fact, it's all about power and control and resources in Southeast Asia. So the government lies about every single war. There is never a war where Britain and America have been involved because of humanitarian intent. They do not have what ordinary people would think of as good intentions. It's always criminal intentions. And the other thing to note about wars is that they are never what would be called last resort. So in theory, under international law, you, you cannot invade another country unless it's a last resort, unless you've exhausted all other options. Well, in practice, America doesn't consider any other options. It actually aggressively tries to fight multiple wars. And in fact, with lots of the ones that, uh, that William Blum, the person I was talking about at the beginning, wrote about, there were attempts by other people to bring about a peaceful resolution, but the Americans were not interested. So the situation... I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, actually, at this point about... Uh, you were talking about Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, uh, about how we all heard about the atrocities that he committed on his people there. and uh, But you, sa you said there's a reason behind that attached to the Vietnam War by America. Well, that's that's absolutely true. So, so uh, some older uh, viewers might remember that there was a famous film called The Killing Fields that came out, uh, well, I guess, about 40 years ago. And I can't remember the exact date. But that was very much about events in Cambodia where a genocide took place, where the, a dictator came to power called Pol Pot. And he had a government called the Khmer Rouge. And whenever uh, this uh, the film is talked about or whenever... Uh, the mainstream media talk about these events, they sort of talk about them in isolation as if they just somehow happened. What they don't point out is that these events in Cambodia happened after America had dropped huge numbers of bombs on Cambodia, slaughtering large numbers of people and destroying parts of the country. And that was the circumstances that enabled Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come to power. If he, if America had not done that uh, mass slaughter and destruction, it is highly unlikely that such an extreme regime could have come to power. Another thing that's worth mentioning about Cambodia is that there's an outstanding British journalist called John Pilger. And during that period, he was by far the, the most important journalist writing critical material about British and American foreign policy, certainly uh, in Britain. And he has pointed out in some detail that although these days Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge are always criticised by our governments, at the time when Pol Pot first came to power, Britain actively supported uh, that, that government. Yeah. So whenever anybody says 
you know, Britain and America fighting for freedom and to protect people, that's that's actually not true. And we'll we'll talk about some more examples of how we know that isn't true uh, as we uh, as we sort of work through and, today. And so, also, I mean, getting on, I don't know, it's a bit later, but Wikipedia, um, Julian Assange created WikiLeaks. the circumstances, yeah, with WikiLeaks, where where we learned a lot of this stuff, didn't we? That's that's true. I'm going to do a little section right at the end where we'll talk about how we know what's really going through the minds of decision makers in Britain and America and how we know about their um, their motives. Um, yeah. So if we um, just look at the current situation today, there's approximately 800 military bases, uh, American military bases around the world, and they're trying to achieve what they call full spectrum dominance. This means they want to control land, sea, air, even space and cyberspace. So the internet and computers and the, the whole tech thing. So they've, they are close, certainly militarily, they are completely uh, dominant in, in much of the world. Um, so if we look a little bit about Britain's role uh, in all of these things. So you have to remember that up until 1945, Britain was the dominant empire in the world. Now, often in, in Sorry. our... So are we going to say something? No, no, no. I was just uh, trying to trying to get me out of shot. Right, so okay. Just listen to you. Right, okay. So, um, so we need to sort of think, what does it mean to be the dominant empire in the world? Because often this is presented in our history books as taking civilization to the, to the natives. Well, it had nothing to do with taking civilization to the natives. It's important to understand that all empires are about power and exploitation. So that meant that up until 1945, the, the British military were the leading invaders, occupiers, mass murderers and torturers around the world. And after the Second World War, Britain was losing control of its empire. America was replacing Britain as the dominant empire. So what Britain wanted to do, partly it tried to retain control of parts of its empire for a few decades after World War II. But at the same time, it was trying to ensure that new leaders in each country would structure their economies in a way that would allow British companies and also American companies and other companies from advanced nations to control resources, to extract resources and to dominate trade. So, for example, um, British soldiers were absolutely brutal in Malaya between 1948 and 1960. And that was because British tin and rubber companies wanted to control the resources there. So there is a British historian who spends his life or has spent much of his life going through the files that were secret and are now declassified. And he actually runs a website called Declassified UK, which is the best source of ongoing uh, sort of foreign policy uh, critical journalism uh, on the internet for British readers. And he estimates that Britain is responsible or Britain has significant responsibility for approximately 10 million deaths since the end of World War II throughout countries related to its uh, to its former empire. And this involves 
So a lot of widespread murder and a lot of widespread torture. And so the countries he highlights as ones where we were particularly brutal was Aden, which is South Yemen, Kenya, Palestine, Cyprus, Brunei and Borneo. Uh, but in, in fact, we were committing atrocities in many more countries uh, than that. Now, similarly, France was also another major imperial power up until 1945 and the end of World War II. And they also tried to retain control or dominance in many of their former colonies, uh, particularly in North Africa, where even today, big French companies own and control a great many of the resources and extract a huge amount of profit from some of the North African countries that were part uh, of its uh, empire. So Britain today has 145 military bases in 42 countries. So it's not on the same scale as the US empire, but it's actually a very, very significant collection of military bases spread around the world to enable us to attack other countries. So one question that people want to understand is, why do Britain and America commit war crimes? And in fact, I found a quote that was written by a former American U.S. Marine Corps general called Smedley Butler. And he wrote this in 1931, but it's still the best quote I've ever come across that helps you understand what war is about. So I'm going to, again, read it uh, in full. I spent 33 years being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. And that's such a great summary. It helps you understand in an instant that all war is ultimately for economic purposes. It's about power and it's control and it's about resources and it's about exploitation. And uh, various American planners uh, talked about their future role in the world after World War II. So in 1948, one of them said, America has 6% of the world's population, but we control 50% of the world's wealth. Our goal should be to maintain this position of disparity. And that is essentially what America has done, using whatever means are available to it, including the most brutal war crimes, it is trying to control uh, resources and trade. So I should explain, I use this expression, control of resources and trade, as a bit of a shorthand for a number of connected things. And it's worth understanding what those different things are. So America wants poor countries to have leaders who will allow American companies to extract, process, and take resources, and also to dominate the trading system. They don't want too many restrictions from local laws. They don't really want regulations on taxes, on exploitation of local populations, on pollution, and so on. They, they want as few restrictions as possible. They don't want resources in other countries 
to be controlled by local people for their own use. So what we see is a system that I call neoliberalism. So some people might think of that as a sort of predatory capitalism, a really extreme form of capitalism. So this involves uh, privatization where uh, things such as the water supply that were owned by the government are controlled by private companies so they can make profit. It involves austerity, which people these days in Britain will be familiar with, where governments uh, spend less money. And when this happens in poor countries, that has terrible consequences for the poor within the population. And they want very weak uh, regulations. And so we've actually seen all of these things happening in advanced nations such as Greece and Britain, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis. But these policies have been forced upon uh, developing countries um, for quite some time now. So associated with that, American leaders are trying to block what's called independent development. So they support politicians and leaders overseas, and they can be military leaders, they can be dictators, uh, who are right wing. And those leaders love working with the United States because they know that they will gain power and wealth in their own country. So as far as America is concerned, the enemy is the representatives of the poor. So this can be union leaders, church leaders, teachers, left wing politicians. So if the people of a country manage to get a left wing government into power who wants to become independent, to want wants to stop exploitation by American companies, then America will go to great lengths to destabilize that country and overthrow the government. So that can include invasions, overthrowing the government, political manipulation. It can involve sanctions where they put blocks on trade, which we'll talk about later in the series, which can have terrible consequences. They can apply financial pressure by forcing the banks to close down bank accounts. And more recently, we've seen what are called color revolutions, which are very rarely spontaneous events initiated by the public. They tend to be events initiated by the CIA and other organizations who are outsiders trying to create a revolution. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about the uh, the formation of our NHS because it, 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 and and the uh, recovery of monies from slavery uh, because let's start with slavery first as it's earliest um, reparations were made to slave owners and they weren't finished paying until uh, 2001 I believe I think it was 2001 it might even have been 2011 um so and also we loaned money from America to to build our NHS didn't we and that wasn't repaid until the beginning of the 21st century so um I was what do you think that that was a plan all along to to now they're uh, taking control of it and putting it on an insurance-based system now that they're not getting the loan repayments anymore? Uh, well, so they've got a lot of complex issues there. So certainly from the slavery, it is always one of these fascinating things about history when people discover that when slaves were freed from their owners in Britain, instead of the slaves receiving the compensation, which they obviously deserved, in fact, the government paid the slave owners the yeah. compensation, quite large amounts of compensation in some cases. And it, it's a it's a lovely 
kind of insight into the mentality of kind of the collusion between governments and wealthy people. That it, in those days, it was very clear that the government operated for the benefit of wealthy people. Now, as we've dis discovered in some of our earlier presentations about how the economy is rigged, that's still true today. Primarily, yeah. the government works in the interests of the rich. And it doesn't really matter, uh, as far as the government is concerned, what happens to poorer parts of the population. I've, I've just checked up that, that when slavery was abolished throughout the British Empire in 1833, the British government borrowed 20 million in order to compensate the slave owners. Uh, it was an astronomical sum at that time. And the debt was not paid off until 2015. So... Yeah. All those, all the people in this country who've been paying taxes have been paying for those slave owners to have their compensation. This is the astonishing thing about how the sort of financial system kind of works with these things, that actually you can have these government debts that last decades and, in, in this case, over 100 years. Yeah. And as you say, it is the taxpayers who do end up footing the bill, which is a, a direct transfer of wealth from ordinary yeah. people in society into the pockets of the rich for no good reason, but for insane or sociopathic uh, reasons. Uh, the privatisation of the uh, NHS, I was not aware that the British government had actually borrowed money specifically in relation to the NHS, but I am aware it's borrowed money in the past for various other things. I don't know that the privatisation of the NHS that is sort of going on by stealth all the time is necessarily linked, linked to um, discussions about debts and so on. I think it's just a general strategy. Part of what I was talking about in terms of their desire to have a neoliberal economy, that part of that involves taking existing systems, so it could be water, but it could be a functioning healthcare system, and trying to hand it over into private hands who will then use it to extract uh, wealth from. So it's all part of the, the same uh, system. So, so it's not always it's not always wars, is it? You know, it's it's it, you know it's not always wars as we see wars. So um, it is a war, of course, but it's not. It's it's so much more under the surface. Isn't well, it? I think that's a really good point, and this is something I try to drive home to people that you can never analyze anything in isolation. All of the different things that we talk about, whether it's the rigging of the economic system, corporate crime, corruption in government, war crimes, they're actually all interconnected. And uh, we'll be looking next week a little bit about what's been developing recently in Afghanistan, where people realised an awful lot of rich, powerful people were using that war simply as a means to take money out of the system and line their pockets. Yeah. What about Yugoslavia? Well, Yugoslavia is um, is a a great example. So this is right at the end of the 20, 20th century, throughout the 1990s. So again, if you watch any mainstream media presentation about events in, uh, in Yugoslavia, then they'll tend to portray it once again as Britain, America, and any other countries that were working within NATO at the time to try and save the population of Yugoslavia from tyrannical leaders. So there was one leader in particular who was demonized and smeared, and his name was Slobodan Milosevic. So he was the, the Serbian leader. And once you actually examine what was going on, you realize actually 
It's much more like the other situations that I've already described. So you have to remember that this all began approximately in 1990, 1991. The year before that, in 1989, the Soviet Union had collapsed. So Russian power was no longer the dominant force that it had been. And Yugoslavia had sort of formed this middle ground between the USSR and the West. And um, Germany in particular, but also the Americans, recognized that once the Soviet Union collapsed, they had a chance to destroy Yugoslavia. And that's exactly what they did. So they used terrorists. We're going to talk about terrorism a lot in future weeks. But America actually trains terrorists yeah. to fight our wars overseas. Well, we used terrorists to destabilize Yugoslavia, to, to initiate fighting and so on. And it led to the complete breakup of Yugoslavia into approximately half a dozen different parts. And that was called Balkanization because that region is known as the Balkans. And actually, that is now a strategy that America tries to use with other countries, that it realizes that if you can get people within these countries fighting against each other, because often they're not ethnically the same. There are different groups who've been unified over the years because of the arbitrary drawing of boundaries by colonial powers. But actually, if these people are uh, motivated to fight each other, which you can do in all sorts of uh, ways if you're a clever government, then uh, you can eventually bring the country to, to break up. And so that is a standard divide and conquer strategy that, um, that America uses. So there's a couple of points that I just wanted to uh, sort of finish the presentation with, which will help people understand a couple of very specific things, the three very specific things. So if I just finish summarizing the, the goals of US foreign policy, which are about controlling resources and trade, an aspect of that that's actually really important in the minds of planners is to maintain the US dollar as the world's, it's called the reserve currency. It's the most important currency and a great quantity of oil and other minerals is traded in dollars. And other governments would like to change this system. So the US dollar is no longer dominant. America doesn't want that. And we'll talk in a future week about how that played a role in America uh, and France wanting to overthrow Gaddafi in Libya. Yeah. But America also wants to make sure that there is no major rival, either economic or military. Now, what they're finding, what they've been finding for the last few years is that China is now an economic rival to America and Russia is a military rival to America. So in 2018, America changed its main foreign policy focus away from terrorism. And it now uses the slightly a cumbersome phrase, interstate strategic competition. What that means is stopping Russia or China from uh, being able to limit American power. And it isn't just Russia and China. It's actually any nation that might be powerful within a region. So that includes nations such as uh, Iran. Uh, so what we see is that America basically has what it calls a perpetual war economy that so much of the American economy is built around war. So many of the uh, the weapons that are produced, the planes, the, the ships, uh, and so on, are produced throughout the states. And so everybody supports uh, wars because it's so, so important for the economy. And so, as I said, we'll talk about Af Afghanistan in a future session where we see a really shining example of that. 
Now, the most important resource that America wants to control is oil. And a former U.S. spokesman said that oil is a stupendous source of strategic power and one of the great material prizes in world history. And that's been the case for about a century now. And so American control of oil is not so much about America wanting the oil for itself. It's also about denying it to others because oil is so important to any advanced nation. Let's say it's important to China. If America can limit uh, China's access to oil, then it can limit its economic uh, development. Now, when we look at causes for war, lots of people say, what was the reason for the Iraq war? And people will look for one single explanation. But in fact, what you find is there are often multiple forces or multiple causes all sort of pushing in the direction of war. So if you look at various advanced, uh, various wealthy companies that are strongly connected to government, so this would be the banking industry, the oil industry, mining, food, weapons, technology, private military contractors, they all benefit from having wars. So yeah. if they get an opportunity to have a war, they're all in favor of it. They will not push against it. And in fact, more recently, we've seen that there's a great deal of money to be made in what's called the war reconstruction industry. And various yeah. commentators have said <clears throat> America has basically a destroy and rebuild yeah. aid strategy. So it will yeah. destroy cities and then it will pretend it's giving aid. But that will go to American contractors to rebuild <laughs> parts of the society. So yeah. lots of people benefit from wars. So the final thing is, how do we know what the real motives for war are? So if you ask a mainstream politician, why do Britain and America fight wars? What's your evidence for your beliefs? They'll say, well, Tony Blair said he had good intentions. We had to save the people from um, Saddam Hussein. And they'll come up with all these reasons. And the journalists will say, there, you see, that's how we know that Britain and America have good intentions and so on all the time. But in fact, this is completely contradicted by all the evidence. Now, we know this partly because of the declassified files that I mentioned earlier, uh, which showed that governments lie about every war. And we also see in those files that government officials use phrases like national security or official secrets in situations where actually they're not really anything to do with national security or official secrets. It's simply to cover up their crimes. <clears throat> yeah, and... in the, the Second World War, um, we were told that we were going to free the Jewish people, the disabled people, the, the ones that were being persecuted by the Nazis. Um, um, and was that, in fact, the case? Well, World War One and World War Two, as I said at the beginning, are two of the greatest examples of... Um, military propaganda and historical propaganda that have ever existed. And nearly everyone in Britain, at least partially, buys into these myths. So if we just sort of go through the sequence of events so we understand what was going on. So World War One began in 1914. At that time, as I've mentioned earlier, Britain, France and America, which were called the Allied Forces in World War One, they were the three dominant imperial power. So we invaded and killed more people in more countries than anybody else. Now, Germany wanted its own empire. So World War I is very clearly 
a battle for imperial supremacy between the existing imperial powers and countries that wanted to become imperial powers. Now, if we then jump ahead to World War II, in fact, we realize that not much has changed. So we're jumping ahead to 1939, so just over 20 years later. Britain, America, and France are still the dominant imperial powers and the dominant invaders and murderers around the world. And again, Germany was trying to create its own empire, primarily by expanding within Europe. Now, you can argue that the German leadership in World War II caused an enormous number of deaths and carried out huge genocide against the Jewish people, but also against gypsies and various other um, groups. So you can debate whether they were more evil than the existing empires. But once again, it's very clear that there were no good guys in yeah. World War II. We were not actually there to protect the Jewish people. In fact, there have been lots and lots of historians who have written about this, and many wrote about it at the time, that in fact there were discussions about how the Jewish people could have been protected, but Britain and America wanted nothing to do with those discussions. And yeah. so that the genocide, the Germans then carried out uh, the genocide. But there are lots of other courses of action that Britain and America could have pursued uh, that would have uh, either decreased or stopped uh, the genocide. And wasn't so, the royal family very good friends with the with the royal family with the you know the hierarchy in Germany? And I know that the Sunday the 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 Times um, night editor was was Jewish and he remarked to to the guy that owned the Times uh, I went Rothermere was it Rothermere anyway whoever it was um, he remarked to him that uh, he had tales from Germany from family and friends in Germany that people were disappearing lots of people were disappearing and he 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 thought that the Times should run a story on that and of course, it was refused. He lost his job. He was he was made penniless and and ended up, you know, in, in complete dire straits uh, because he dared to try and speak out. And that was like three years before we even knew about uh, World War Two, really. Well, so, so it's, it's as if you know quite a lot more about the detail of that era than than I do. So I tend to sort of see it from a big picture um sort of scenario i so just I, thought I, it was yeah it was it it's good to uh relate it to something that that's tangible that, that we that we already know about <clears throat> and and then you can see where the where the gaps start widening don't they between what we're told uh, and what we've been educated to think absolutely so in fact truth yes it's it's very interesting when if you look at so many different aspects of kind of British society and you realise that things that are sort of, they exist, people take them for granted and they go unquestioned. Actually, once you scratch below the surface and examine them, you go, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe that's that's something slightly different. So, in fact, just recently, people will have been aware that um, lots of people have been buying and wearing red poppies. And if you mm. talk to the poppy sellers and you look at the websites of the organisations that promote these, they say it's about celebrating, you know, soldiers. And sometimes they'll say it's about never again. But other times they'll say it's about recognizing these people died for our freedom. But in fact, when you start to analyze World War One and World War Two and every other war that Britain and America fought, you realize that these soldiers are never dying for our freedom. 
Yeah. They're dying because they have committed crimes following orders from sociopathic leaders who run the governments in, in Britain and America. And in fact, there's two very interesting short uh, examples, one from World War I and World War II, which show how nonsensical the whole red poppy thing about protecting freedoms is. So in World War I, also fighting against Germany was the Russian military. Yes. Now, the Russian people thought that this was not their war, and they didn't like their dictatorship. They were called the Tsars. So actually, they had a revolution. It's a very famous revolution. They overthrew their government, and they withdrew from the war. They recognized they, they didn't want a war with Germany. Well, if, if what uh, Britain and America were interested was freedom, they would have said, well, it's fine. That, you know, if they want to withdraw from the war, that's okay. Those people are entitled to their uh, independence and, and to make their own decisions. But actually what Britain and America did was to invade Russia yeah. to try and get the dictatorship back into power. Now, on that occasion, they failed. But if you jump ahead to just after World War II, again, fighting alongside Britain and America had been the Greek people. And after the war, the Greek people didn't want their dictatorship back in power. So again, Britain and America invaded Greece to yeah. get the dictatorship back into power against the wishes of the people of Greece. And on this occasion, they succeeded. So <clears> in <throat> fact, what British and American soldiers do is the opposite of freedom. It's actually to impose dictatorship against yeah. the wishes of the people of these countries. So it's really, really important. The next time you get a red poppy seller knocking on your door, have a chat with them and say, listen, why not get, there's an alternative that people can get, which is called the white poppy. Now, um, I haven't looked at their website for a couple of years. The last time I checked, they were celebrating conscientious objectors. And I think it's really fascinating that actually very many philosophers say, listen, we know we'll be making progress when we celebrate conscientious objectors in the future, in the way that we celebrate soldiers today. Yeah. We have to stop celebrating soldiers as heroes. They're not soldiers. They are participating uh, in uh, in war crimes. In, in, in crimes, yes. Well, when you, when you talk about um, armies, that's quite different to the people that our brothers and our uncles, as was, now it's our sisters and our aunties, uh, are joining up to go and fight a war based on totally false information that they've been bred to believe, um, that's been drummed into them from, from birth. So, but even if you look at the poppies, um, the poppies were originally created to, to be sold. And the money that was raised was to, to fund uh, uh, some, some kind of, uh, money for the for the veterans yes. of these wars you know that had nothing they came back with nothing with their legs blown off their arms blown off whatever mental health was just uh, you know gone and uh, so if the poppies were actually created to form to, to form some kind of support for veterans uh, it's still being used now for governments to evade the, that responsibility to look after the soldiers that they sent to their wars, didn't don't they? And you know, so if every soldier looked at that and questioned before they joined up, 
<laughs> I'm not saying just soldiers, naval, air force, you know, whatever. Uh, before you join up, just look at it and think, hang on a minute, I'm going to, I'm, you know, a friend of mine, he carried his mate back from Goose Green. Um, within two years, he was homeless, living on the streets because of his mental health, did, you know, deteriorated. And um, he, he, he just couldn't, his family couldn't handle it anymore. And so he ended up on the streets, you know, and just, there are so many. Do you go around, if you go around the cities and towns, um, I would say, I would say going around the town, I would say if there were 10 people uh, sleeping on the street, five of them would be ex-forces, ex-servicemen. Yes. And, so, so again. Go on. So I, so I, th I think the issue of looking after our former soldiers is, is a, is a complex one. And one of the things I actually want to sort of talk about in a, in a future uh, session on um, propaganda is about how we've got so so much militarism in our societies. And if, if we didn't have all this militarism and all this propaganda, then I think people would question what is the role of the soldier before they join up. And yeah. when, they, when they actually see the reality, I think it would cause them to ask uh, a lot of um, hard questions and to be more reluctant to join up, but was in fact yeah, and, and we should all become conscientious objectors, really, and and force our children as mothers and fathers. We should force our children to face up to the fact that they must uh, be conscientious objectors to any form of war, because um, you know the, the the people that joined up uh, for for World War One and World War Two, for example, they were starving anyway. And and the the forces, the services, as we I'm not sure whether to call them forces or services. I know that it changed, didn't it, to services or to forces, one way or the other. But the people that joined up were evading avoiding starvation. And yet when they fought the war and came back damaged, um, if they came back, they faced more starvation, but actually it's true what they say about you know when you're facing such such an, a terrible situation when you come home that's that was why we did create the nhs well, you know yes. those, so, those people so that raises a quite sort of quite a lot of interesting sort of issues so what you're saying about the fact that when people signed up they were starving if you look at the us government's recruitment policies to this day they very much target people in deprived areas who yeah. feel they have no future yeah they don't go into public schools yeah. they, only go yeah. into, they only go into the state schools in in the uk they don't go into private schools well so the the ironic thing is um i think in the, the sort of private sector there probably are enough people who are very very happy to sign up as officers yeah. And, um, you know, to be be the leaders of these things. So it's a sort of complex psychology in relation to that. And, and in fact, the, the whole point of things like uh, combined cadet forces and so on is to brainwash people into believing that the military is an acceptable uh, and role. It gives, it, what's the saying? It gives you a trade. Learn how to drive lorries. Indeed, you know? that sort of thing. And in fact, I heard just recently, I haven't researched this in any detail, that the, the government was um, struggling to recruit. Uh, and so this year it had a rather different recruitment campaign for its military, a thing which was targeted more at minorities. And it's been fantastically effective that in three months they recruited everybody they wanted to uh, for the year. 
So it's very, very easy to mislead people by entirely misrepresenting um, war. And I, and I hope that uh, people who are listening to this will go away and talk about some of these topics and encourage other people to talk about them and to question them and to start saying, listen, we really do need to think that the conscientious objectors were getting it right. And also that people like Jeremy Corbyn were getting yeah. it right and saying, you know, let's not do wars and invasions. And you've got to ignore what the media say. So if Jeremy Corbyn comes along and says, look, my main foreign policy is let's try and avoid invading other countries if we possibly can. Nearly everyone's going to invade. Uh, going to invade. Nearly yeah, everyone's going to support that. Wars but, are always ended by talking about peace. So why yeah. don't we talk about peace first of all? Absolutely. That's what Jeremy said. Yeah. And don't, the, you'll make me cry, please, because of what we've lost. I know that Jeremy failed on a number of uh, on a number of uh, facets um, to 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 stand up as we would have wanted him to stand up against anti-Semitism, etc. But but he 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 made so many people enabled so many people to stand up and be aware of their own strengths and powers so it makes me so very sad that that we weren't able to win that that was another bloody war wasn't it well indeed that was a sort of media war but the interesting thing is whenever the media discussed his policy they wouldn't be honest about it they basically yeah. just kind of say soft on defense or soft on terror they completely yeah but he would push it. the button he wouldn't yeah. push the button how That's dare right. he and it's like well would you push the button would you push a nuclear button i absolutely regardless of who else nuclear. pushed a nuclear button would you ever do it no no, that's right. I think the vast majority of people wouldn't. And so yeah. this is the interesting thing about how the media are very, very good at completely inverting things. Basically, back is white. You know, person who has good policies, they portray them as the enemy of, of the nation. And um, now they're I, telling us that, that we are uh, a warring people, that it's in our natures to be a warring people. Well, I, I hope people are savvy enough to start to question <laughs> That sort of thing. But you never know these days. No. Uh, there, is one, there is one thing I do want to specifically cover um, as, as sort of part of tonight's discussion because it's uh, it's very close to my heart. So I was just sort of finishing off with saying, how do we know about what's going on? And um, I campaigned for a journalist called Julian Assange who set up WikiLeaks back in 2006. And what he did was actually completely revolutionary in that yeah. he created a technology that allowed whistleblowers to send electronic documents to him and the software would remove all of the information that would allow anyone to know where that had come from. Yeah. So people could be completely anonymous. And this has transformed journalism. So what yeah. we found was that insiders and whistleblowers were sending him millions of documents. And in particular, they sent the Iraq and Afghan war logs, which was about half a million documents, detailing day after day after day, American soldiers murdering innocent people in huge numbers. Yeah. And they actually created some software to add together the number of murders committed by American troops in Afghanistan, and it totaled hundreds of thousands. And in Iraq, the numbers would have been many more. And this was up until 2010. Well, in 2014, and we'll talk about this in a future session, America massively scaled up its air bombardment. So it slaughtered many more. So yeah. the death toll in these countries is in total millions. 
So we had a detailed record of war, the like of which no one had ever seen outside the military before. And so the American government wanted to send a message to all journalists that if you get in the way of us doing war, then we are going to get you. And Julian Assange has been persecuted for 11 years uh, since then. So he hasn't, he hasn't been killed yet. Who was the, the, the female reporter? One killed in Ireland uh, with a car bomb, I think, and another one killed in Greece, I believe, with a car bomb. And, you know, Julian is now in a prison and with no charges. With no Absolutely. charges, the charges were dropped. So, what what is that all about? And how can they? How he is a political prisoner. How can they? Uh, and we are not allowed to to send pol political prisoners out of the country. He's not even American or English. He's, Absolutely. he's bloody Australian. So it's it's one of the most shocking miscarriages of justice. Uh, in Britain, it's probably the most important legal case for many, many years. So at the moment, yeah. America is trying to extradite him. It's been ruled that he cannot be extradited, but it's going through various appeals courts and so on. But they'll keep appealing until they get him, won't they? It, you well, know, so it seems likely that their strategy is to just keep him locked up year after year after year, facing different charges, yeah. but never able to regain his freedom and carry on. Uh, with his work, and they pre presumably have decided that from for their for a public relations point of view, that's a better strategy than just killing him. Because yeah. perhaps if they if they assassinated him, which they had discussed doing, yeah, then um, they think that might uh, that might. Well, it would have martyred him, wouldn't it? And it would have perhaps you know like. Um... Uh, Je suis Charlie would have would we would have all perhaps stood up. All of us journalists and and just people would have stood up and perhaps said, "Right, that, that's it. We're we're not going to take any more of your bullshit." So I think that's the worry that the British and American governments have. So which is why they're they're doing the process they're doing now. But it'll be very interesting to see how it develops. In that I think if they try to keep him in prison after the next judgment comes out, which should be in the next few months, I think that's going to get to the point where even mainstream journalists in Britain who've been completely on the side of the government for years smearing him will start to ask hard, hard questions. Yeah. And really, you know, like you were talking about the, uh, the, all the, all the people that have gone before Julian Assange and, and, you know, declassified UK is, is, uh, you know, along similar lines of, of researching this information that is now unredacted um, or, or free to access. And they've made it legible for, for the lame person, for an ordinary person to be able to understand. Because, we're, you know, we're not all, we're all bloody mired in the propaganda from the day we're born. Uh, and we're, we're never allowed to think outside the box. In fact, like Julian Assange, we're punished in some way. We have to fear we have to fear our, for our lives and for the safety of our families if if we speak out. So I think just to wrap this up, I think that has, has always been the case, hasn't it? You know, of course, because of this strategy by America and, well, America and the UK, France, all the big powers that want to keep that power. 
Well, I, I think it's been the, the case throughout history. So if you look at the Roman Empire, I suspect it was very, very uh, similar. So the British Empire for 100 years was, sim was similar. France, with its slightly smaller empire than Britain's, was, was similar. Uh, and America is, is similar today. Uh, so we hope that over time, people in America, because they're the ones that really need to think about, you know, why do they keep electing such insane politicians. They're the ones who, you know, the, then we've the got to look at their electoral system is is rigged so that they can't elect anyone actually. Because completely, that's they, right. It just gets changed out by the College of Electoral College, doesn't it? Well, so we have something similar over here now. Under Keir Starmer running the Labour Party, that his goal yeah. is clearly to make sure that the Labour Party is not an effective opposition. So yeah. there is nothing to challenge the establishment. Yeah. So the establishment is the sort of a, the bureaucracy in government. It's also the richest, most powerful companies. So it's oil companies and banks and so on. Yeah. And there's nothing at the moment. There's no mechanism that we have in Britain or America to actually hold these people to account and do anything about it. So it does no. require... Apart from to... revolution. Well, it, indeed. But unfortunately, the history of revolutions is it's rather mixed. There's, the, the people who are good at leading revolutions often don't make very good kind of political leaders when they come into power. No. So I'm not sure that a, a violent revolution is necessarily the right thing, but a peaceful revolution, uh, I think, is something w worth trying to discuss. Yes, where we all become conscientious objectors. That would be a great first step. Yes. If nobody signed up to join the military, then they couldn't fight these wars. But it would require a whole different mindset among young people as they grow up. We'd have to speak in schools. And well, we see that now, don't we, with the Palestine action, uh, you know, at Elbit systems. And they've just had to, they're, they're planning on moving their Elbit, their weapons systems out back out to uh, to Saudi or the Arab Emirates. They're, they're setting up out there again now because it, well, it's Israeli, isn't it, Elbit? Well, I, I haven't studied the Elbit situation, so I, I won't comment on it um, today. I, I, I like to do really thorough research before I uh, comment on anything. Well, we've we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I I will say yes. It did. Uh, somebody commented that uh, this is turning into a bit of a lecture, but the thing is that Rod is so you're in so informed on these subjects because you do this research, and I. I'm an editor, so I just I, ha I have a smattering of all. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a you know loads of jobs, so I don't have any in-depth information. And so I'd really like you to speak, so that people can hear what you've got to say and learn so much as I've learned so much. So I'd just like to thank you very much, Rod. Very informative. Thank you for um, having me on again. And brilliant. And um, and we'll see, Rod. Oh. The week after next, perhaps we don't know, but it, it will be soon. Okay, thanks very much, Julian. And we're going to be talking about the second part. Yes, so recent war crimes by Britain and America. Right. Thank you very much.